Romans chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 17, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 27, Romans 16, 17 to 27, and you'll find that on page 950 if you're using the church Bible. And again, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching and hearing of his word this morning. Our Father, we would not take for granted the great blessing of sitting under your word. You have said in the scriptures where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. And we are thankful that you have not only restrained us, but that you have subdued us to yourself through the preaching of your son. We are thankful that we have experienced what he said we would experience, that if the son be lifted up, He would draw all men to himself. And so we pray, our Father, that as we come to the end of this letter and this final sermon in the series, that you would exalt your son, that we would see him lifted up on the cross and that we would see him lifted up at your right hand, that he would be exalted in the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that you would establish us by your grace. We pray, our Father, that we would know what it is to live by grace in the Lord Jesus and trust in him, and rest our souls on him. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would accomplish great and wonderful, redeeming things in our souls and in our lives this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17, Paul now bringing the plane down, as it were, says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites or bellies. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent As to what is evil, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipator, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I can think of nothing worse than a bad ending to a book or a movie or a letter. I think I gave up letter writing simply because I didn't like bringing letters to conclusions. Writing endings to articles is one of the most challenging things I've ever done, and nothing bothers me so much than investing huge numbers of hours of my life into a television series only to have it ruined with a 45-minute ending that I could have written better at the beginning of the show, which is why I invested all the time into the show, and you know what I'm talking about. 
And if you don't, you're more pious than me. Well, it's interesting because you would wonder, wouldn't you? How, how is the Apostle Paul going to bring the greatest letter ever written to a close? What is he going to talk about? He might revisit those great themes that he introduced in chapters 3 through 5 where he talked about Jesus as the righteousness of God, as the, the one who, who gives us his righteousness, takes our unrighteousness on himself, the great exchange that Paul has laid, the foundation of everywhere. Or you might think Paul would mention those things that he introduced in chapters 6 through 8 where he talked about the sanctification that we get in Jesus, that God is transforming us into the image of his son and giving us his spirit. He might, you would think, talk about the benefit of adoption. That's a huge blessing. Paul is the great apostle of adoption. He tells us all about adoption. He tells us that we have been adopted into God's family and made heirs of all things. You might think that Paul would talk about all of those saving blessings, but Paul doesn't talk about any of those things when he comes to the end of this letter. What Paul actually does, and we'll see this this morning, is that he ends the letter the way he began the letter. He ends the letter with a focus on God establishing us in Christ through the scriptures by the apostolic ministry and God's mercy and grace sustaining us and keeping us. And what Paul does that's so fascinating at the end of this letter is that he first leads in verse 17 and following with a warning. He gives a gospel word of warning. He tells them to avoid those who cause divisions and who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, to avoid them. And then he gives them a word of gospel promise in verse 20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, And then finally, he gives them a word of encouragement, how they would be established, how they would be sustained, how they would be kept in the grace of Jesus. In short, Paul is writing a letter almost as a father to a son and telling them, this is how you're going to be established and kept. This is how you'll be preserved. This is how you will continue on. Now, as we look at the first of those three things, and we see that Paul first gives a gospel word of warning, the interesting thing to keep in mind is that this is a church that didn't seem to have any false teaching in it. I would challenge you to go through the New Testament and see if you could find another church, another letter to another church in which you would find no reference to false teaching. This is a church that seemed to have been untouched by false teaching. It's a church that had a minor division over the weaker and the stronger brethren and over what you could eat and what you could drink. And the stronger brethren knew they could eat and drink whatever. And the weaker brethren didn't have a conscience informed by God's word. But that was it. The other interesting thing about the word of warning is that Paul was not present in this congregation. Paul was not the pastor of this congregation. He had not planted it. And so on face value, this seems out of place. He's just greeted this long list of people. He's He's expressed his apostolic love and his brotherly love to them. And now Paul gives this stern warning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Now, this is important because what Paul is essentially doing is he's teaching that the strongest churches still need strong warnings about watching out for false teaching. The strongest churches, the churches that are most doctrinally faithful, the churches that are most biblically saturated, still need to be on guard against false teaching. 
Now notice what Paul does. He mentions Satan in verse 20. It's the only time, interestingly, in the entire letter that he mentions Satan. He mentions sin almost in every verse. So the great problem that Paul's dealing with in the lives of those he's writing to is their sin. You don't get to blame Satan for your sin. It's our sin. That's the great problem. That's what God deals with in the gospel. But we know from the rest of the scriptures that we have a great enemy who brought that who tempted our first parents, who brought into this world rebellion, who who waged war against the God who had made him. And notice that you have there in verse 21 reference to Satan. But I think that what Paul's doing all the way back in 17 is telling us how Satan works to destroy the church. And that the primary thing that the evil one does is he plants false teaching in the church. You know, I often think it's funny when I watch movies, especially around the time of Halloween, there are all these heightened uh, exorcist-type movies. And, and we have a fascination with the demonic and the paranormal. I think part of that is because there are demons. But it's interesting to me that after the Gospels and after the ministry of Christ and after the initial ministry of the apostles, the chief way, the chief way and the chief working of Satan and demons in the New Testament is false teaching. It seems a lot less horrific. It seems a lot more palatable. Uh, Paul will say that Satan comes as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. Um, Every page in the New Testament in some way or another, is reacting against false teaching. Um, John Calvin puts it so well. Listen to this as he comments on these verses. He says, The ministers of Satan are ever ready to take occasion to disturb the kingdom of Christ. They attempt to make disturbances in two ways. They either sow discord. Notice Paul mentions discord, division. They either sow discord by which the minds of men are drawn away from the unity of truth, or they occasion offenses by which men are alienated from the love of the gospel. Now listen to this. It was not without reason that Paul required this attention from the faithful, for it often happens through our neglect or want of care. So if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't care, you are a prime candidate to hear what Paul wrote. If you don't care about what I'm saying right now, listen up. Paul's talking to you. Calvin says, it is for our neglect or want of care that such wicked men do great harm to the church. Before they are opposed, they creep in with astonishing subtlety, astonishing subtlety for the purpose of doing mischief, except or unless they be carefully watched. So what Paul is doing is he's telling a church that is strong in doctrine, strong in the truth, a church that has received the truth, a church that was so mature. Let me say this this morning. A church that was so mature that they received the letter that has baffled the greatest theologians and philosophers through all of human history. The depths of the letter that Paul wrote to this church contained the greatest mysteries. This was a church that was ready to receive the meat of the word. And yet this was a church to whom Paul says, be on guard. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that have been taught. Avoid them. Now, let me say this this morning. I have come to believe that the more biblical a church is, the more it is going to be attacked directly by the evil one. 
and that all the crazy, wacky cult stuff he leaves to junior league demons. He just leaves all that stuff to them. That stuff's obvious, I hope, to you. But that the more sophisticated and the more nuanced error and theological uh, falseness and false teaching is directly aimed at those churches that are most mature. And I think that it's interesting as we look at this letter and we think, well, did the church in Rome heed the Apostle Paul? History answers that for us, doesn't it? History answers what happens to the church in Rome. History shows that at some point they stopped heeding what Paul said. They didn't watch. They allowed much error to creep in, locked in, and interestingly, it's the only church to this day that's still going, and error is deeply locked into it. So at some point, this church didn't listen to the Apostle Paul, fell into the very thing that he said that they should have been on guard against. Notice, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. Notice this, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It is so easy for people to fall into false teaching. All it takes is a sweet accent and a couple nice words. This is what Paul said. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the naive. Now notice what Paul tells them to do in verse 19. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It's actually a paraphrase of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that they were to be wise as serpents. I'm sorry, in the Gospel of Matthew, they were to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. And interestingly, when Jesus says to the disciples, I send you out, he said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, be gentle as doves. And Jesus everywhere told them to be watchful, to be on guard. Notice the things that he tells them to be on guard against in verse 17. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Now, um, there are two things that Paul talks about here. He talks about division and he talks about false teaching that goes against the truth of the gospel. Those two things. And now, most people will line up on one of those two sides. Some of you have a disposition, unity. I like relationship. I want unity. Uh, unity is what God wants. Unity, unity, unity. And then some of you are probably like truth, 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 truth. And Paul doesn't give us that option. He doesn't say either unity, 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 or truth, truth, truth. He doesn't give us that option. In fact, what Paul will say is that the Christian church has its unity in the truth, is united in the truth of Christ, in the gospel, in the truth about Jesus. He will actually tell us, notice verse 24, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, what is the gospel? The preaching of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Go back to chapter 1. Turn back, page 939. Chapter 1, Paul explains what the gospel is. Notice what he says in verse 1, that he had been set apart for the gospel, which he promised before, through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, and here's the content of the message concerning God's Son who was descended from David, so he was made man, he's God's Son, he was made man. According to the flesh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the preaching of the gospels, the preaching of Jesus, the son of God, God, the son who became man, who became the seed of David, who became true Israelite, who became the redeemer, God and man in one person, two natures, inseparable forever, who died and who rose again so that we get all the blessings by faith in him. That's the gospel. Jesus, God and man, one person, died for our sins, rose for our justification, is glorified, is now the son of God with power. Anyone that teaches anything apart from that is teaching you false teaching. And notice what Paul says about the character of those that teach false teaching. One of the marks, and we don't know exactly who Paul has in mind here that might be a potential danger to this congregation. But notice he says of those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So there are those who Paul knew would come in and would say, well, I know Paul says that, but, but, um, I, and believe it or not, I... Seven years ago, was at a pub with a seminary student at a reform seminary um, up north, and he was telling me that he didn't believe that justification was by faith alone, because um, God gave the law, and the law is so prevalent in the Old Testament, the do this and live had to play a role in our justification. And I said to him, well... But Paul, the Apostle Paul, appeals to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, and and he cites that verse, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed, and he was counted righteous because of the righteousness of faith imputed from Jesus. And um, my friend looked at me and he said, well, I think Paul misread Moses. I think Paul misread Moses. Now, some of you laugh. This was a man going into the ministry in a Reformed church. Paul understood that there are always wolves. By the way, very bright young man who went on to do a PhD at an Ivy League school. Very bright. The path to hell, I don't know who said this, the path to hell is paved with Ivy League PhDs. That's a true statement. Um, Subtle nuances. And yet, notice he says those who cause... Divisions. Now, when you read that on the first glance, you might think, well, then anyone, Paul is saying, anyone who comes into the church and who, who in any way causes any vocal problem whatsoever, anyone, it could be the worst church ever, and you could have a man saying, wait a minute, this church is not standing for truth, and he's vocalizing the need to hold to the truth and return to the truth of Scripture, and, and he brings other people out of that church. That man's a divisive man. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, notice what Paul's going to do here. Notice what he does at the end of verse 17. He says, those who cause division divide from them. Okay? Those who cause division divide from them. So Paul's not saying unity for unity's sake. Let's all get together and just live at peace with each other no matter what. Paul is not saying that. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword to divide father against son, mother against daughter. When people are converted and brought out of darkness, many times division is created because of the grace of God to one individual in this world. So Jesus did not come to give world peace here and now. He came to establish world peace in the consummation. And yet, notice that the false teachers were those that in some way were causing divisions. 
They were those who would uh, create factions and schisms, and they would teach contrary to the doctrine that Paul teached. They would set, and we see this in the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians, that there were false teachers who came in who said, forget Paul, forget what Paul's saying. We are the eloquent ones. It may be that Paul has the same men in mind. Notice that he says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, very simple point to us. We are to be on guard against false teaching. And the only way that we will be on guard against false teaching is if we are deeply submerged in the truth of Scripture. I had a guy who mentored me when I was a young Christian, and I, I was you know, figuring out how to debunk Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, the wacky cults, the junior league demon stuff. And, um, and he said to me, he said, Nick, study the scriptures, know the scriptures, know the scriptures. He said, you don't study counterfeits to see what a counterfeit is. You study the real dollar bill. Anyone will tell you that um, the, the federal agents that study counterfeits, they don't study counterfeits. They know what the real is. They know all the features. They know all the nuances. They know all the lines and all the markings. They know all the very detailed things on the currency that if they see that missing, they know that that's not the real thing. And the way that we do that is by studying scriptures, by knowing the scriptures. Notice how Paul ends this letter when he talks about them being established. Notice what he says. He says in verse 26, that, that the gospel has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. That's the Old Testament. Know the Old Testament. Know it well. Know all the contours of the Bible. Know all the genres of the Bible. Know how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying at the end of this letter that because the only scriptures that they had to preach from were the Old Testament. That's what they preached from. They preached Christ out of the Old Testament. And what Paul has been teaching in this letter is that it was always about Christ. It was always God's plan to redeem people through Jesus. And that the Old Testament in every genre, in every category, I would argue on every page, is teaching the truths of the sufferings of Jesus and the glories that follow. And if we get that and we understand that, then when people come in and they try to twist and pervert the scriptures, we will be able to see clearly that they're counterfeits. Um, Eric Alexander notes on this section that Satan uses people to keep people from God. It's a very important point. Satan uses people to keep people from God. Um, Jesus knew that, didn't he? When Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, you'll never go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That when the truth is attacked... When falsehood is coming into a church, there are principalities and powers at work. Now, you may say, well, I don't think that would ever happen in this congregation. If Paul warned the church in Rome, which was the strongest, most mature church in the New Testament with this warning, we certainly need to be on guard. That means in every place where the scripture is taught. This is why, by the way. Elders need to be apt to teach. They need to be apt to rebuke and exhort. They need to be apt to refute error. They need to be able to see and preserve because at the end of the day, what the first century Christians know that we often forget is that false teaching is far more dangerous than martyrdom and persecution. 
because they understood that martyrdom doesn't put an end to them, that they had eternal life, but that, that false teaching will be to the eternal destruction of your soul. That is the most true and real and severe statement that you need to hear this morning, that the most dangerous thing to the church of Jesus is false teaching. It is not persecution. It is not even division within the body over members that are bickering with each other. It is falsehood. It is a denial of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul was so serious about this that with the Judaizers in Galatia, he said, if anyone preaches another Jesus, it's possible to talk about Jesus. It's possible to say, well, I know these good people. They're good people. They, they talk about Jesus, but it's another Jesus. It's not the Christ of Scripture. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Paul says, let them be accursed to the deepest place of perdition. Let them be anathema. That's how serious this is, that there is nothing in your life. I'm going to say this as strongly as I can this morning. There is nothing in your life you should be more concerned about than this. Nothing. Not whether your wife is healthy, happy, provided for, whether your husband has a good job, whether your kids are going to college, none of that. All of that is dust compared to this. Because on Judgment Day, what you believe what the scriptures taught, how you defended it, how you preserved it, how you gave your soul to it will be everything. It will be everything. Your bank account won't matter. None of that will matter. I want to say this this morning. This is the most fitting way that Paul could have ended this letter. It's the most important thing that you could ever hear. Be on guard against those who teach falsehood. And notice then, secondly, Paul gives a gospel word of promise. It's not up to us. This is the glorious thing about this. Notice verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is an allusion, obviously, back to the first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. The Redeemer would come. He would have his heel bruised. He would crush the head of the evil one. That's Jesus. On the cross, he did that. That's D-Day. We're waiting for V-E-Day. That's the best illustration you can get from that. Oscar Coleman came up with that. It's very helpful. Victory was already won on D-Day in 1944. V-E Day brought an end to the war. Christ has already won the battle. D-Day has happened. It happened at the cross. He crushed Satan's head. And yet there is a day waiting when God will crush his head under our feet. That is a glorious thing. I am waiting for the day that I get to crush the head of the evil one. Standing with the Lord Jesus, with all of his malice and hatred and lies. You know, why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much falsehood? Why are there so many religions? If there's one God, why? Because there's a devil. And we're going to crush his head under our feet if we're in Jesus. That should make your heart rejoice to think about that. All the times that you've wanted vengeance against other people, no one has done anything to you and deserves any kind of retribution the way the evil one deserves retribution. And God says that his church, united to Jesus, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now that's also telling us that God is committed to defending his church. God is committed to defending his people. God is committed to protecting his people. One theologian has said, when God's people are attacked, God gets violent. I like that. The psalmist talks about God rising up as a drunk man of war. It's one of the best illustrations of God in the Bible. That when his people are attacked, God becomes like a drunk man of war. 
You do not want to meet a drunk man of war. God gets violent when his truth and his people are attacked by the evil one. That is a word of promise to you. That even though we have to watch in this time, we have to be, be serious-minded about what God has taught in our lives and how we're living our lives before him. There's that great gospel promise that one day he is going to destroy the evil one and his works, and he's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Now, notice that Paul does one other thing finally. He gives us a gospel word of encouragement. He's given us a warning, a promise, and now notice an encouragement. Now, it may not be evident. You may say, well, I'm not sure how to fit verses 21 and 23 in with 17 to 20 and 25 to 27. It seems like those verses should have gone with what went before, that when Paul was greeting everybody, all those names that I stumbled over, that he should have put these names in there too, because I stumbled over one of them again. That he put all those, those names together, put all those people that he's greeting together. It seems like that would have been, so maybe Paul just you know, had a glitch, started writing about crushing Satan's head, and he was like, oh, wait a minute, Timothy's going to greet you. Um, I think that Paul does what he does very intentionally. I think that the list of names of people that he lists in verse 21 to 23 have everything to do with the preservation of the people of God. It's an encouragement. They're not alone. Ministers are going to be coming to them to protect them with sound teaching, to strengthen them. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Notice, notice that we're told of these other men that greet, these other ministers who care about this church, who are laboring for them. Tertius, he's the man who penned this letter to them. He's giving them this letter. He greets them. That in one sense, what Paul is saying is that God has appointed gospel ministers for the strengthening of his people. That is a necessary means of their being strengthened. And then notice he gives us, scattered throughout this section, the secret to their endurance. What is the secret? Is it resolve? Is it, I will go out of this place and try harder and work harder and do better. I will take these things seriously and I will do better. I have failed. Oftentimes I have not cared about things the way I should. I will do better. I will try harder. Notice what Paul does twice in this section. I love this. Notice verse 20, how he ends verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then again in verse 24, and it's not in the ESV, but it's in, I believe, the text, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So twice Paul says in this ending, it is the grace of God that establishes you. Turn to the end of the Bible. I want you to see this. I I saw this last year and I'm surprised that I've never heard anybody else point this out. I think that this is a pretty substantial thing in the scriptures. Last verse of the Bible. Seems like that would be a big deal. God has spoken for thousands of years through prophets, has revealed his will, has revealed all the glorious mysteries of Jesus, is establishing his people by every word that he's spoken, Genesis to Revelation, and then God gives the last word that he's going to speak. What is the last word that God is going to speak? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's the last word that God speaks. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's almost the last word Paul speaks in Romans. The grace. At the end of the day, the only way that you are going to watch against sinful division and heresy, 
The only way that you are going to rejoice that God is going to crush Satan under your feet one day, the only way that you're going to receive the ministry of God's ministers, the only way that you're going to endure by holding fast to the truth and giving your soul to the Lord Jesus and clinging fast to him is merely by the grace of God. The whole of the Bible, if somebody asked you, what is the Bible about? You name it. Name one book in the Bible. What is Amos about? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Obadiah about? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, it's not a judgment in there. It's all serving the grace of God for the redemption of his people. The judgment's pointing to the judgment Jesus endured on the cross. Everything's pointing to Jesus. Everything's moving to him. Everything that God has spoken is meant to establish your mind and heart and my mind and heart that everything that you have from start to finish is merely by his unmerited, undeserved, everlasting grace. And that he is going to establish you by that grace. Notice the next thing he says in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you, to strengthen you, according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus. The good thing is that radical call to be on guard, that radical call to watch against false teaching, it's not dependent on you ultimately. Now to him who is able to establish you, God, the infinite God, the God who he will say at the end of this letter, notice how he ends Romans, the only wise God to whom be glory forevermore through Jesus is able to establish you by his grace in the preaching of Jesus. Notice, he says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, why do I preach Jesus to you every week? Because I know that your greatest need and my greatest need is to be established in the grace of God and the gospel. And that God has said, I will establish you through the preaching of Jesus. He doesn't say, I'll establish you through the preaching of my law and my commandments, as important as they are. He doesn't say that. He says, through my gospel, through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then notice the means. And I'm going to close with this. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. And that means that the gospel, as I've already said in the Old Testament, is there to establish you in the grace of God. So many people make the mistake of thinking Old Testament wrath, New Testament grace. There could be nothing further than the truth. That's that's the furthest thing from the truth that anyone could ever try to convince you of. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and grace and mercy. He is the same God in the New Testament. He is still a God of wrath and he is still a God of grace and mercy. The gospel in the Old Testament was the gospel of God's mercy and grace in Jesus. The gospel in the New Testament is the gospel of God's mercy and grace in Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament saints needed is everything that you and I need. We need Christ. And God has given us the scriptures to establish us. Um, One old Puritan writer, I think, remarking on why more people didn't preach Amos or Obadiah, said that we need the whole Christ from the whole Bible for the whole man. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that these things were kept secret, but now they've been revealed, and they've been revealed to the nations, that not just Jews, but Jew and Gentile have been redeemed in Christ. And notice, he says, according to the commandment of the eternal God. I love this. Where does the confidence come from in the scriptures? You know, on one hand, you can say, 
I read the Bible, God opened my eyes, I saw clearly, I had my wrong thinking straightened out. I think most of us who have been redeemed can say that. But behind that, behind that, lays the command of God, that God has commanded to use his word and the mystery that was kept secret to establish you by his grace. You can have confidence that when you come to the scriptures to grow in grace and to grow in faith, that God will do for you and in you what he has promised because God has invested his commandment and his purposes and his will into the scriptures. And then finally, notice verse, the latter part of 26 and 27, he tells us in this word of encouragement that there is a goal to God's grace. The goal is ultimately not... Um, your salvation. Your salvation is not the ultimate goal of the scriptures. It's not even the ultimate goal of the gospel. As important as it is, and I know as important as we feel it is and need to feel it is, the ultimate goal, notice what Paul does in verse 27, the ultimate goal is that the only wise God would get glory forever through Jesus Christ. That Paul returns to what he did in chapter 1136. I'll read that to us as we close, because there's probably no better way to close the book of Romans than with this thought. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The reason God does everything that he does, the reason God is doing everything he's doing in your life, is that the only wise God would get glory forever. If people don't like giving God glory, they're not going to like heaven. Most people think of heaven as a turning in on myself, whatever I want it to be. Heaven is us exulting in Jesus Christ and God getting glory for his wisdom, for working that wisdom out and redeeming us, for all that he's done in punishing the wicked and redeeming his people, God will get glory forever. That's the purpose. That's the, that's the goal of everything in life, the glory and majesty and praise and exaltation of God. This is what John sees in the vision in Revelation, isn't it? When he... He sees that vision of heaven and the great multitude standing before the throne from every tongue and tribe and nation and language and standing before the throne and before the lamb and they're crying out, you are worthy for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood and to you be glory and majesty and dominion and power forever. That's the goal, to you be glory and majesty and dominion and power forever. Everything in the book of Romans is pushing to that. Everything God reveals in Scripture should create in our souls a desire to give God glory, to worship God, to fall on our knees, and to say, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do in our souls what we have just read, we pray that you would make us a people who are watchful against being led astray from the truth. We pray, our God, that you would give us joy and gladness that you have promised to crush the evil one under our feet, and that one day you will consummate this world and you will judge all unrighteousness and you will bring us to glory. 
And we pray, our Father, above all things, that you would create in us souls that long to bring you glory, souls that long to exalt in you and magnify your name and the name of your Son. We pray that you would receive glory and honor from us as we believe in him and as we love him and adore him and trust him and long to be with him. Our Father, we pray that you would do a great work in us, that you would make us mindful that you are the only wise God, that from you and through you and unto you are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.